0: And so I've always been interested in how things survived and what we can learn from relating back to the stories and the folklore that perhaps was a, a little bit more relational with land. I'm very interested. What drives me is this kinship, this kindred spirit connection between ourself and the living earth. Animism drives me. So I'm devoted to helping everyone find their own way in to the love affair. And by the love affair, I mean the love affair with the earth. And I think the bees and myth are two really good ways in.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. Today, I'm bringing back guest Ariella Daly. I first interviewed Ari at the beginning of this podcast journey, episode nine, entitled Know Thyself Weaving Myth and Magic into Everyday Life. It was a very loved episode. A lot of good feedback on that, which I still hear. It still rolls in sometimes. I've been wanting to catch up with Ari for a while and there's there's a lot to talk about <laughs> if you're interested in the fraud wrought by the author whose book Ari's teachers base their teachings on and we'll talk about this at the beginning of the interview i'm going to say a few more a few extra words about this after the interview and there are 3 patreon bonuses for this episode I love, love this conversation. I am captivated and enraptured by honeybees. And I just, the exuberance was flowing through me, wanting to share more and more. And as you'll hear, as this conversation was winding down, I just had more questions for Ari, more like personal questions about how she's making donor-conceived single motherhood in her 40s while running a business work, and more about her father's death, she tells me in the first of these three Patreon bonuses about the dream she had the night before her dad died, and about how one of his physical ailments was passed on to her as soon as he left his body. And we talk more about her chronic autoimmune illness and her hospital transfer birth, so I'm naming this extra extended conversation um, birth and death portals. The second Patreon bonus is a one hundred percent off coupon code for Ari's Kindred Bees lecture series. This is fourteen gorgeous slideshow image based lectures on different aspects of be kind the bee queendom. They are really, really special. And I especially love the one how bees heal us. Now, Ari and I do touch on the many medicines that bees produce and how they help humans and also the ethics of how some people harvest them for humans. But one that we did not touch on is venom, bee stings, apitherapy, Oh man. And she does in this, in this lecture. So about 15 years ago, I was taking an herbal apprenticeship course here in Nevada city, California with Kathy Cavill, who has written some wonderful books. And Kathy took us to this elderly beekeepers farm. His name was Al. Al was very old, (laughs) which side note, but like incredibly important side note, The longest living job people in this job live the longest is beekeeper. That is so profound. There are so many reasons I can see for that being the case. But so Al was very old, and he had I think arthritis in one of his joints. You know he was aching, and he told us and he showed us how he would go out and take a little bee and hold her up to his achy part and let her sting him. And it reduced the inflammation and brought him immediate relief. That was the first time my mind was really open to how we misunderstand bees in our culture. We'll talk more about that in this episode, but They're nothing but a font of healing for humans, and not just through their honey and pollen and royal jelly and venom and propolis, but through their being, through who they are, through how they function as a society, as a group, as a family. I mean, you know all this, I'm sure, especially with colony collapse disorder being so talked about over the last decade. We can't live without bees. (laughs) So many of our crops would be done for. But it just goes deeper than that. Like there there is true wisdom to be imbibed when we are in relationship with bees and observing bees. The third bonus at patreon.com slash medicine stories. These are all for patrons at the $5 level is a resource list. This is Cultivated by me and Ari, and it's just our favorite websites, books, and Instagram accounts to bring you in closer relationship with the bees. I also wanted to mention before I get into it that I am not affiliated in any way with Ari's upcoming women's beekeeping apprenticeship course. I asked her about it at the end, and when I re-listened, I thought, oh, it sounds like I'm trying to like make a sale. But I just love how she weaves together bee tending and the mythic. And I really wanted to know more about her course and how she came up with it and how she's um, framing this weaving together of these mythic archetypes throughout place and time with different aspects of beekeeping and the hive. So I'm smiling as I record this. I can't wait to share this episode with you. Let's listen to the dripping, sweet, honey wisdom of Ariella Daly. Ariella, welcome back to Medicine Stories. It's been six years, I think we just decided. Five or six years. Uh, You were one of my earliest guests. It was a very, very beloved interview. And so I want to start out by asking you for a life update which I know that's so much to ask. It's so much to ask someone, um, especially with everything you've gone through. But especially, I know people will love to hear, you know, we had talked in the last interview about your really traumatic miscarriage that led you to beekeeping and your longing for a child, for a daughter. So um, yeah, just speak whatever you'd like to. Hmm.
0: Well, thanks for having me back. It's interesting to be back. That, that that podcast, I could have never guessed that episode would would bring so many people my way who felt the same and who were drawn to the bees. It was a really big podcast. Still it's people still come to me from that show or from that episode. And goodness a lot has changed. I mean, we can go right to the uh, the big wonderful news, which is that I have a two-year-old daughter named Aurora. But how I got there was not easy. That that episode was a lot of discussion around the process of going through miscarriage, spiritual experiences around that, and I would say that bringing my daughter in was quite the, the spiritual journey for me, as well as a physical journey, and it involved many more years. Of, I think it was 217 that we interviewed, and many, many more years of searching and really finally coming to a place of recognizing that I might need to do it on my own after asking a few handfuls, a small handful of beloved men in my life who said no for wonderful, good reasons, but still said no. So my life since that interview has involved continuing studies with the sacred trust, which is interestingly now absolutely falling apart, probably has completely fallen apart due to some major controversy with the founder, Simon Buxton, and the revelation that a lot of his work was not something that happened in real life. He wrote the book, The Shamanic Way of the Bee. And it turns out most of that came through journeys and you know whatever it was, dreams, who knows. But the story we were all told was that it was an intact lineage. So many of us, myself included, who have made their work and their spiritual path around that are experiencing the great dismantling and dismemberment of the women's bee tradition and also finding ways to reclaim it for me, at least for the bees and as a bee woman without needing to be of a particular lineage. So it's very complex, but nonetheless, continuing on and studying in England with the really incredible teachers that I was working with who didn't know about Simon's deception.
1: Let me, I want to clarify because you said it very fast. The book is The Shamanic Way of the Bee. It was written in the early 2000s, right? And presented by the author Simon as as true events um, and has since been proven not to be. Not only did he imagine, make up a lot of it, but he also directly plagiarized from P.L. Travers, who is the author of Mary Poppins. It's far worse than that, Amber.
0: He plagiarized from P. L. Travers, but he actually—and this is all coming out in November, December, twenty twenty-three. He actually plagiarized from over sixty different other authors, including yeah. Rudolph Steiner and Jeanette Winterson. Wow, mess. So you're um, you're catching me in these interesting moments. Uh, last time we were talking about you know grief and transformation, and this is sort of another spiritual death, an ego death, and transformative moment. Two years after the death of my father, the bringing in of my daughter, I got pregnant in 2020 and I did it through a donor. And it happened with a lot of synchronicity, which I could have never expected. I think one of the most incredible things that happened was that I learned that you can have a magical conception and a magical birth, even if it's not through maybe like what we might think of as like a coupled conscious conception or something like that. I had a very conscious conception. Bees swarmed the day I conceived, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a beautiful snake crossed my path. I found an antler in beneath the swarm. It was just like so much magic. Happened you about- must have conceived in spring, right? Maybe May. I did. May 2020 my midwife and I had a midwife do the um procedure we have a we had a known donor come forward finally actually and he came up and gave us the donation and my midwife did the procedure at home which I didn't even know was possible and so it was just this really soft quiet moment and I was projecting another five or six months of having to try, if not more. It's very unusual to get pregnant from the kind of procedure I did, which was an ICI, um, in you know an intrauterine, uh, or intracervical, excuse me. And it's just one of those things where most women have to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. And I am one of the very, very small percentage, maybe five or 10%, that actually conceived from the first try to the point where I was in denial that whole, those whole three weeks, I had so many early pregnancy symptoms and my body responded so fast. And it's like, it, it can't be, it's not, but it was so immediate. And, um, and, and then continue to be pregnant through the pandemic and had a child on my own wanted to have a home birth had to be transferred to the hospital another major rite of passage for me I was so afraid of the hospital because of my miscarriage I thought if anything was going to go wrong it would go wrong in the hospital but I was very taken care of and it was a beautiful birth and I got to pull her out they brought in a mirror for me to watch and then they let me pull her to to me and I had requested a moment of silence and darkness when she was born and they granted me that even though she didn't come out crying. And they, I I told them, you got to give me one minute, just give me one minute. And they did have to make her cry and breathe and resuscitate her and rub her and all that. But I knew she was going to be fine. I knew that that moment was going to be okay. So she came in and then a year later, my dad left. It's just been a wild experience of Birth and death and autoimmune issues, and like discovery. I was just listening to your podcast from a few podcasts back about autoimmune issues and discovering of have Ehlers-Danlos, just like so many things. And at the same time, mm, would you short, listen to my interview with I did Yes, yeah. mass cell activation. Yup. Developed asthma the day my dad died. I mean, it's just psychosomatic, but very, very much autoimmune.
1: Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, you've been trying to figure out health stuff for a long time. A long time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Inflammation, eczema, all of it. So figuring it out though, doesn't mean like having the answer of like, oh, I think I know what it is, even though no doctor is going to give it to me. Even My doctor dismissed it when I was like, I'm, you know. <laughs> Like, chiropractor diagnosed me with OSDANLIS. She's like, Oh, I don't think that's true. I'm like, well, I'm hypermobile. She's like, No, you don't seem hypermobile. Okay.
1: <laughs> this is all what episode 106 of this podcast is, too, by the way. Yeah. Chronic illness is not being diagnosed in women.
0: Which is, I mean, it kind of brings us back around to something like beekeeping, is so therapeutic through the ups and downs of life, even though you you have to confront death with bees, constantly. There's something about being around the hive and the hum and the frequency and their signature, energetic signature that is deeply restorative to what I would call like the great dis-ease of our times, which is, in, in my opinion, a deeply rooted to our nervous systems across the board all of us dealing with nervous like our nervous systems are not wired for this modern day life and then you add toxicity loads you know the bees are showing us ourselves they're mirroring what's going on with them it's just a mirror showing us what we're dealing with as well so.
1: Yes. I, I took your course intro to natural beekeeping. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Very affordable sliding scale tells you everything you need to know about how bees work as a super organism and how to keep bees. And, but one thing that you really ask is why, why do you want to do this? And I've been for years now, ever since you recommended the book song of increase to me and I read it and it, blew my heart open. I think this was in 2020 as well. I've been wanting to keep bees and now I, now I feel like it's time, but I was like, what? I I couldn't quite put my finger on what my, what my why is until you in that course pretty much (laughs) nailed it, which is, yeah, like nervous system regulation, wanting to, I, I understand the state of being of the bee superorganism and what it takes for a human to really tend them in a, I hate to use the word conscious, but you know what I mean, in a mindful, present, loving way. And, you know, of course, I also want to like be a part of helping be kind and helping the plants and everything, but I, I just want to like feel that resonance and you you articulate that so beautifully, and Jacqueline Freeman articulates it so beautifully in that book, Song of Increase as well. She really does. yeah, yeah, I actually now really need to know <laughs> did Simon was all of it plagiarized, or did he come up with any of of what was read in that book, which I written in that book, which I also read at the same time I read Song of Increase? It is not known. I
0: I want to know so bad. I want to know so many things, but I I cannot say, you know, it, according to the a meeting he had with the staff, the faculty, so all the women who teach this work, they immediately left the Sacred Trust, by the way. There's no more faculty there besides him. But they according to an email that went out from them, they met with him and They said large portions of what's written in the book came from non-ordinary states, meaning visions or journeys, which have a place if you if you say that this came through a meditation, this came through an experience. That's okay, but presenting something as an ancient lineage that you were taught by a person is very different, and Mm -hmm. I cannot say. I'm still waiting for more details. There were other people who supposedly were part of this, and Naomi was in touch with one of them. I'm trying to understand who that was. She's she'll get back to me at some point with that. We don't know, you know. They're finding, in terms of plagiarism, they're finding things from like a Bee journal from the 1800s and a Mead website. So, wow, he cast
1: wide to weave a very magical tale. Yeah. Well, as you and I discussed when we were preparing for this, even though it is heartbreaking and infuriating to find out that someone presented something as truth that was not, when it comes to bees, it really doesn't matter. You don't need a, a mystical lineage of teachings. The bees themselves are so truly magical. Yes,
0: just on their own just their behavior and biology but beyond that there actually is a lineage of bees being sacred in fact the name for the title for certain greek goddesses was melissa which means bee it was one of the titles we can't say it as a blanket statement it's like one of the titles for demeter was bee one of the titles for her daughter persephone was honey-like Her priestesses were called the Melissa or the bees. The Delphic Oracle was called the Delphic Bee, as well as the Pythia and the Pythoness. It's it's threaded through this connection to the bees and life force, the bees and the other world. These beings that seem to emerge in the spring, who produce an ambrosia, who bring forward this nectar of life who seemed to be lovers to the flowers, to tend to the flowers. There were theories in ancient Greece that the magical dew fell at night and landed on the flowers, and it came from heaven, and the bees collected it and drank it up and produced this ambrosia, this food of the gods called honey. And they came out of these womb-like places, the tree hollows and the caves, and... Seem to be able to birth themselves without a male partner. So there was this parthenogenic, autogenic goddess connection. So, yes, they're magical as a biological organism. And yes, many cultures have seen them as magical and connected to the divine throughout time. And just to make a statement real quick, what I'm talking about and what we're talking about are Apis mellifera, which are the honeybees. Or European honeybees, or the honeybees that originated in East Africa and migrated into Central Europe and became the bees that most of the world beekeeps with. But there are eight other species of honeybees and then just so many species of native bees all over the world.
1: Mm. Okay. Oh God, there's they're so oh they're so amazing. They're so or just for like a child, right? It's like awe. They are they truly inspire awe. And one thing that I just really had my mind blown by was in this book that you recommend called The Buzz About Bees, which I love. Gorgeous photographs. My seven-year-old daughter, Nixie, and I, there it is, where she was just all morning. She's like, oh my gosh, what's that? What's that? You know, and just, I'd be like, that's the larva being fed royal jelly. And she's like, what? You know, just like every new image totally blew her mind. But I really love, love this idea that as individuals, of course, bees are insects, but as an organism, they display mammalian-like adaptive strategies.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. The book she's talking about is by Jürgen Tautz, and he was the first one I ever encountered that language around to say that A honeybee organism is more akin to a mammal and mammalian tendencies than it is to other insects. And why? The why of that is we have to understand the organism a little bit better, but it's it's an organism consisting of three, you could say three living parts. Although I would argue that the, the entire nest is living from the home that they live on to the honey stored within it. But you have these three signatures. You have the female bees, which our modern day beekeeping world call the worker bees, but it's not really the greatest word to be using for them. So I call them the female bees or the sister bees, or sometimes what Jacqueline Freeman calls them, which is the maidens. And that's most of the hive are these female bees. Then there are also the drones, who are the male bees. And they're deeply misunderstood. Dismissed by most modern day beekeeping, you know, schools of thought. And we're finding out, of course, that they're way more essential than they've been given credit for. And then the queen bee or the mother bee. So, all of the the work that happens in the hive, all the building of comb secreted from their own abdomens, all of the gathering of nectar and foraging for water, because they don't just forage for nectar to turn it into honey, they also forage for pollen, they forage for something called. Um, well something they turn into propolis which is basically tree sap that they mix with their own enzymes and a little bit of nectar so they have all these substances that they forage for they live inside a dark hollow that's the nest site or in a beekeeping perspective or from a beekeeping perspective a box a human-made box a hive together they're called a colony but what's interesting is that within that nest cavity Together as a whole, they are able to regulate temperature, much more akin to a mammalian, a mammalian body, but specifically a womb. Because if we look at that entire interior structure, it centers around what they call the brood chamber. The brood chamber is where larvae are laid by the queen in an ever-growing spiral. So she spirals out in her pattern around and around one cell at a time, laying eggs. And when she gets to the edge, she goes back to the center and starts again. So she's lying, lying, laying, excuse me, laying eggs in this spiral pattern. And then the female bees, the house bees, otherwise known as the nurse bees, who have the ability to secrete royal jelly, which is very high in, in growth hormones and proteins, et cetera, et cetera, they are keeping the nest site warm around the brood. The brood can't get below, I believe, 98 degrees. So they have to keep it warm despite whatever's going on outside and or cool. So they'll keep it cool by fanning their wings or they'll keep it warm by vibrating their bodies. And of course, the more bees there are doing this, the healthier the hive, the better the hive is. So the better chance they have of survival. They also have to keep the queen warm. If she gets too cold, she'll go sterile. So there's this thermoregulation happening. They're also maintaining humidity within the hive. They're doing all of these things to create a stable structure, a stable environment within the hive. And then we go in and mess with that. (laughs) So... We are doing a lot of I'm part of what we might call the natural bees beekeeping movement or the bee centric beekeeping movement to unlearn a lot of beekeeping practices and relearn who the bees are. Not just as they live within human made environments, but also who they are in the wild. That's a little bit about that structure.
1: Yes, thank you. He also points out, and you you touched on this, that female mammals produce nourishment in the form of milk for their offspring, from special glands on their bodies, and female honeybees produce nourishment in the form of royal jelly yeah. for their offspring, from special glands on their bodies, which And is it's
0: quite, oh gosh, this is the thing I have to tell you. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> So it looks milky. and the the little larvae before they hatch into a pupa and turn in and go through metamorphosis, They're eating that raw jelly. They can eat, like they get fed 1,300 times a day, up to 1,300 times a day. But here's the crazy thing. So you know how human women can, I actually don't know if this is true for other animals, but how a woman can spontaneously begin lactating if there's a child in need. Well, and sometimes for other reasons as well. And this can actually happen. And I know people who this has happened to, where women can actually lactate a little bit of colostrum without even being pregnant. Mm. But women can develop the ability, can start lactating, usually women who have already given birth after that lactation has come to an end in their life. Well, honeybees go through stages of development. And one of their younger stages of development is to be a nurse bee to be able to produce this royal jelly from the hypopharyngeal gland in their forehead or what you might call their forehead. And then that dries up and they go on to the next stage or the next role. So foraging bees, the ones you see on the flowers, those are the most mature bees and they no longer are considered house bees. They're not in their tending to the young They have the hardest job, the scariest job, you know, the most peril is going out there and foraging. If there is a sudden need, these foraging bees can actually reverse age and regrow, open up, redevelop that gland that has dried up to be able to reproduce royal jelly, which is not something you find commonly in a lot of animals, the ability to re reverse age an aging process that has already occurred you know so to go back to that younger state i think that is a really beautiful depiction of how these individual beings are actually part of a again to use not not the easiest word to use but a a greater consciousness and a greater awareness within the hive that has a wholeness and a need within that wholeness that can be met by the individuals, but not one at a time. It's got to be a collective experience.
1: Mm -hmm. So when would that happen? Like if all of the house bees who were the younger ones who were producing the royal jelly were killed or something, like why would an an older... Yeah. If there was a disease in
0: the hive and if there was an overpopulation of mites and a lot of bees didn't survive if there was a cold snap and a lot of house a lot of bees altogether died and there weren't that many house bees left to take care of the young Uh, so that kind of thing yeah Um, can they do they do okay in the snow yeah yeah they do but and i'm gonna have to try and find the link to this article I teach an apprenticeship for women and beekeeping. And one of my students just sent me an article that it's a, in, a, in a scientific publication of some sort. I don't remember which one, but it's about how what we have been tr- doing, thinking is normal for the bees, that they can survive winter. So let me let me start with what we think we know. First of all, any most bees can survive the winter if their numbers are strong enough. Then they're in a warm, dry space. So the best warm, dry space for the bees is going to be a tree, like a pine tree or an oak tree with thick insulated walls. If they don't have insulation, they have to generate heat. Now, what do they do to generate heat? They have to vibrate their bodies, vibrate their wings. takes a lot of energy. How do they produce that energy? By consuming honey which is why it's so essential that bees forage for enough honey through the spring and summer when there is nectar bloom and and early fall to survive on the stores of honey that they have left through the winter and possibly well into the spring. This study, our understanding, excuse me, of honeybees in the winter based on beekeeping, based on Having already changed the factors, you know, they were not studying bees in trees, well, we are now, but we're looking at bees in boxes. We understand that bees go into a cluster, a winter cluster, and it's a beautiful thing, actually. They go into a winter cluster. They keep the center of the cluster warm with the queen. The outer bees blanket the inner bees, and food gets passed out and back through all these bees, passing it from proboscis. that's their. Straw like tongue that comes out that they'd suck nectar from. They also eat honey that way and they'll pass honey from sister to sister or sister to brother that way. And it's like a little bee kiss. What is potentially being discovered is that that luster, that winter ball of bees, is actually a stress response. That when they are properly insulated and surviving, they can survive just fine through snowy times or cold temperatures they're dry warm insulated not dealing with mold and they will actually not go into a cluster they'll stay active so we're learning a lot by observing bees in trees and their more natural nest habitat at least if we're looking at them from like a temperate climate perspective because obviously honeybees also live in tropical climates and live in open air nests if you didn't know that they don't always live out in trees in the wild and Plenty well, of places they live in open air nests if the weather is good, but
1: they
0: do need to be protected from the elements. Does that answer your question?
1: Yes, thank you. It, it seems to me that over time there has evolved a deeper and deeper understanding of truly natural beekeeping, um, and you know that's like it's like conscious <laughs> natural is a a funny word to try to define. But when we look at I mean, conventional beekeeping, it's its just as bad as conventional agriculture. And then, you know, there's people who do it more naturally with boxes. And and then there's now like um, Apis Arborea and folks like who are just sort of tending truly wild bees in trees. Like I, I'm just I'm curious about that evolution, like what sort of beekeeping you practice and just what all is out there. There are so many different ways to keep bees
0: and if you start to look at historical beekeeping practices there's such a wealth of human ingenuity and listening and paying attention to the bees living with or uh, working with bees and trees in fact there's a whole resurgence i think this is really interesting in places like poland and russia there's a resurgence of tree beekeeping where generations of bee trees were maintained. The the family would carve out a hollow within within a tree, and they would use a panel from the tree to create a door that they could take off and harvest honey. But the bees were living in these trees, so they'd have to climb pretty high up, sometimes 30 feet up into these trees, and these trees became like sacred trees. They were passed down intergenerationally. And they weren't allowed to be cut down a bee tree. It was illegal to cut down a bee tree. And so there's this, this is relearning of this skill of connecting and working with hives in trees. Ipis arborea, Mikhail Theo work with log hives and um, setting up, you know, putting a log that's been cut and hollowed out with a couple of openings way high up in a tree strapped into a tree either vertically or on its side the bees don't really care they'll go either direction vertical tends to be better cuz they can draw comb out longer and they're like that but they'll they'll work with any hollow and so this becomes sort of the like one extreme end of bee tending and it can be a little bit hard to grasp if your experience of beekeeping is coming through the modern lens and what we know of beekeeping, which is bees are in boxes, and we, we we keep bees to get honey. In this situation, it's truly for conservation, and so there isn't any kind of going in and inspecting the bees, or uh, other than maybe looking in through, like opening the the bottom and peeking through the bottom to see what does the size of the nest look like. But you're not pulling out panels of bees like we see in all the pictures of people beekeeping. You're not harvesting honey you're not manipulating the hive so that's one end of the spectrum and then on the other hand we and we have commercial influenced modern day beekeeping and i shouldn't just say commercial i should really say like capitalist <laughs> influenced which has its roots in sort of the un- industrial era which is where we get terms like the worker bee these little factory workers that churn out honey for us And more than anything, we are using bees and abusing bees for pollination services to continue to promote large-scale monocrop agriculture. So a lot of people don't know this, but every year in California in February, thousands and thousands of hives are carted on trucks across Canada and the United States to California, to the almond groves, and just lined up usually the hives are wrapped up in plastic a lot of the some of the hives don't even make it and they're just lined up to eat almond which isn't so great almond blossoms aren't the best nutrition for them it's a pretty abusive tendency and our understanding of beekeeping comes from that more more like extractive model what do we how do we get honey from them and i would say that I also don't, I don't want to just assume that the people who created these types of hives that we work with now that look like little filing cabinets where you just pull out a panel and check on the bees, they weren't all out there to just be extractive. It was more, it was more of how can we work with bees where we don't have to kill off the hive. So there's this sort of, well, you know how we always like look to the past and think they had it better. When we look to the past of, for instance, scat beekeeping, which is that Beautiful vision of a beehive we see, where it's a little inverted basket. It's still a wonderful way to keep bees in a tightly woven inverted basket. But the old way, like in the eighteen hundreds, the old way of in seventeen hundreds getting honey was to smoke the bees out. To oh god, what was what was it? It was used to burn half the hive out. To Kill half the hive, I think sulfur was used. And so the hive that we think of today, which is called the Langstroth hive, which looks like a little filing cabinet and it's that box that everybody sees, it was invented as a way to try and mechanize beekeeping so that we wouldn't have to kill so many of the bees just to extract honey. It's really interesting. It was Steiner himself who saw the mechanized honey bee hive and said within 100 years, these are going to be in decline because of this. It's it's complex. I sit in the middle. <laughs> I work with. I sometimes work at the Langsworth Hive. I really like a, a type of beekeeping called top bar beekeeping, which you find used throughout Africa, in particular Kenya, North Africa. You find a lot of top bar hives, but the basic top bar hive is you know a container with just bars put across the top instead of a frame think of a rectangular frame with probably like a plastic insert that has hexagonal imprints across it because the bees build on in hexagons as a kind of a starter for the bees to build off of it's called foundation in the beekeeping world so in top bar beekeeping there's no foundation and that's a really important piece of top bar beekeeping which We actually find uh, in Minoan Crete, top bar beekeeping, where they would just use actual clay vessels and bars across the top. So that's where this comes from. Mm. But yeah, you're looking at letting the bees build their own comb. And when you allow the bees to build their own comb, it's akin to allowing them to create the, the tissue of their body. It's pliable. It's resonant. Sound moves through it. Vibration moves through it when a honeybee comes back from a foraging discovery flight to communicate through this intricate dance, the waggle dance or the dance of the eight on the comb, it travels three or four combs deep. That vibration it communicates, oh, there's food. It's letting bees know deeper into the hive that there's a source of food. They can feel that vibration. It's giving them a sense of optimism and ease and hope when you put plastic in between every comb it stops that resonance it literally stops that vibration moving through the hive so it already is cutting off one of their forms of super organism communication and
1: relating i love this this uh, framework that you give it in in the course of years that I took um, intro to natural beekeeping, which is that, so we talked about like the three different people (laughs) in the comb, the mother, the brothers and the sisters are in the hive, but then there's the, the things that they make that the bees make. So the comb is akin to the skeletal structure, connective tissue, nervous system, Honey is all about circulation, blood, nourishment. So it's like the circulatory system. Pollen is vitality in the digestive system. Propolis is the immune system and royal jelly, fertility and the reproductive system. 100%. Yeah. It's so beautiful.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm not the first to think of that. You know, This is something that I've discussed with Mikhail Thiel. He lives near and near I get to go on walks with him. And obviously, Jurgen Tautz talks about this. It's something that you hear natural beekeepers talk about from time to time. It's a really good point of reference. It's not so much that I'm interested in anthropomorphizing the bees, but in understanding this as a biological system, not just, oh, they live on comb. It's that
1: comb becomes Living. Real quick, do you know which healing herb is your spirit medicine? In truth, there are many, but we have a quiz to help you find one. It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and bring to others. You can find that at our website, mythicmedicine. While you're there, check out our many handmade herbal medicines. We've got reishi, mugwort, redwood, lion's mane, yarrow, elderberry, extra potent elderberry, elixir, y'all. It's good. Body oils. Oh, our uh, violet leaf castor oil that I use every single day of my life. Sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences. All sorts of stuff handmade by my husband and I with so much intention and mythic mindedness. And if you love the show, please consider supporting it at Patreon. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer bonuses there ebooks, extra conversations, guided meditations. I do giveaways whenever possible, resource guides, links to online learning. Lots of coupon codes provided by guests. And the best of it is available at the $5 a month level, patreon.com slash medicine stories. And please subscribe to the podcast if you like it. I just read a statistic that it was a big number, like 75% or something of people who love a podcast never subscribe to it or follow it. And when you do those things, it just shows right up in your feed. So it's pretty awesome. Please subscribe if you like medicine stories. I love making it for you and I appreciate you being here. Okay, back to the conversation.
0: It's like living tissue. It's not this substance that they create to live on. It's part of their skeletal structure. It's part of their communication system. You know, if bees don't get proper, diverse, Pollen nutrition when they're first born when they're young, it will affect their digestive system. Their digestive system won't develop completely, and it will weaken their immune system. Well, what does that sound like? Think about us. If we don't get the right nutrition when we're children, it affects our immune system for our entire lives. You know, so it it gives us a point of relating. Like, oh, right. We are organisms that have a lot of similarities, but then some differences that are absolutely astounding and almost like they're inspiring or something to, in a way, aspire to. I think that's part of why humans have been fascinated with bees for so long. There's this sort of like, I want to be more like you in my interaction with the world, with other people. We we do anthropomorphize all the time with bees, but we really see um, we see something of what's what's possible in them. I took your quiz. What's your quiz called?
1: Oh, gosh, what is it called? It's um, what's your hive magic? Yeah, yeah. And I was very happy to get Propolis.
0: Oh gosh, that so
1: fits. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> and I would I was always really fascinated with it when I worked at the Sacramento Natural Foods Co-op almost 19 years ago now in the wellness department, which is how I got interested in herbalism. And I I just was like, okay, so I'm, I'm just, now that I'm thinking more about preservation of bees and not having this super extractive and capitalistic relationship with them, where we're just raising them to take as much of their honey as possible, which they actually need, um, for their food and to get through winters and whatnot. I'm, i through curious. droughts and for climate change. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so they need for their ultimate resilience. I'm curious about people using Royal jelly and propolis as medicine and if, and how those act as medicine in the human body and what their actual purposes in the beehive. Oof. So I'm I'm actually really interested
0: in this topic as well in terms of my own further research. I I'm working slowly, methodically on creating a class specifically on how these medicines work with the body. But propolis, so we have to talk about what each thing each thing is first. And propolis is gathered from trees. So again, it's it's better or the more diverse. The habitat is, or the bioregion is, the better the propolis is going to be because these trees they emit a little bit of that sap right. It's the the sap that they collect right when the trees are budding out. That's some of the best propolis that's coming our way. And I like to think of that in, in a similar way to, you know, the potency that's held in the seed and what happens when we eat seeds. It's this really potent substance. It's filled with so many healing properties. And then it's combined with bee enzymes and a little bit of that uh, nectar to make a really sticky substance. And they use that substance to sterilize all of the comb, the brood nest. It's part of why the brood nest is darker. If you look at the comb, than honey, where the honey is kept, they use it to weatherize the interior of the hive, fill in any cracks. They use it to even like mummify if a, if a, mouse gets into the hive in the winter and they can't get it out, they'll mummify, they'll seal off that space as with a protective layer. And in wild hives, um, in fact, there's some really beautiful work done by Mikhail Theo looking at this and looking at propolis also almost like a dermal layer where the propolis layer gets thicker and thicker and thicker and has layers over time protecting the interiority of the colony. And what's interesting about propolis is that it's not just that it has these properties to them, but that it's very scent-based. So it's it's filled with volatile oils from all of these plants That's that's immersing the hive in this shroud of this veil of scent magic that is very, very healing for them. So there's a lot going on with propolis. When we harvest it, We can, it's actually one of the easier things to harvest in a way because we can, we can take it from places where, you know, maybe you're trying to open up the hive and you have to scrape some propolis away just to get in. Instead of throwing that propolis away, you can keep it because it's a very sticky substance. In modern day beekeeping, you're taught to try and get rid of as much propolis as possible because it's a nuisance to the beekeeper and oh shucks, it gets on our clothes and it's hard to get off. So we've actually trained propolizing out of bees. And one of the things that natural beekeepers are doing is are trying to create more opportunity for the bees to come back to that relationship with heavily propolizing their hives again, like we see in the wild. And that's doing things like creating rough interiors for them to propolize instead of a perfectly smooth board. So one of the ways that it can be harvested is through creating, like putting a little mesh over the top that they want to fill in and then taking that away during the time of like a, a peak flow of propolis. But I always find that I end up getting it just through sort of the, throughout the year going into the hive for various reasons. I absolutely harvest propolis when, and if I lose a hive, it's one of the ways I honor the body of the hive that's passed on. Uh, yeah so that's that's it but then how it's used with humans mostly people will turn it into a tincture it can be worked with as a powder in toothpaste in tincture form or, or you can actually just chew on it it's just very 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 sticky <laughs> but it's it's antimicrobial it's antibacterial it's antifungal it's antiviral it i i've seen it heal a lot of things. It's great for your immune system. If you're feeling yourself get sick, taking some propolis can be really beneficial. I've put it directly on wounds. I've worked with it when I'm having some skin flares with different skin conditions. I've heard that honey and propolis are also helpful for digestive issues, such as ulcers and things like that. There's a lot of different ways it's used. And so, the second part of your question obviously, I can keep going on that, but royal jelly is a little bit more complex royal jelly is harvested in an inethical way mostly and it's that these little i don't know these these little bars are put into the hive that already have pre-made something called a queen cup so a queen bee or a mother bee has to be raised in a different kind of cell she can't be raised in the hexagon hexagonal cell cuz her body needs to be bigger than the rest of the bees especially for abdomen. So when bees are getting ready to raise queens they'll cuz they want to raise a number of them to make sure that one of them survives and is strong so they'll create a number of these little like acorn looking cups not acorn but the, the cap and like an acorn cap. They
1: look like morel mushrooms hung upside totally.
0: down. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's so right. I've never thought of it that way. It's perfect. And then the, the queen, the old the mother, will lay an egg, knowing that it might be to replace her, but she'll lay an egg in that bean cup, and then the bees will elongate it into a full cell, queen cell, ends up looking a little bit like a peanut. It sh- she'll go on to gestate, being fed mostly royal jelly. She gets a little boost with honey right at the end of her gestation, but that's that's her deal. So they'll make basically a, a, a human-made version of a bunch of queen cups, and the queen will come through. She'll lay eggs in there. They'll fill the queen cups up with royal jelly, and then someone will take them out before the bees have a chance to elongate the cell and use a little like syringe to suck out the larva, discard the larva, kill the larva. And harvest or the word of jelly. And so this repeated action can be not just obviously hard on the larvae that die, you know, that's not great, but it's it's particularly stressful for the bees who think they're raising queens and then the queens are gone and to the practice is to then put the same structure back in. So now they have the scent of everything that's just gone wrong, and they have to redo the whole thing again. So, these kinds of stressors on the hive make, and these are the things I'm trying to shift away from in beekeeping. That being said, I think that every once in a while, working with royal jelly can be a true sacrament and particularly supportive around fertility. So, for instance, my teachers who, even though there's this entire controversy with Simon Buxton, he was not. My teacher, he didn't teach the women's tradition of this gynocentric, womb centric bee work. And I remember my teacher saying, Look, we don't actually work with royal jelly except Ari. You should consider using some if you're trying to conceive a child, but typically we don't work with it. So that would be an example of maybe using it sparingly and with the sense of
1: the gift of what it is. Mm Because what it does for the queen when she's a baby um, being raised up is like it supercharges her fertility. It's Absolutely. an yeah. epigenetic on switch mm-hmm. precisely. And then she's actually continually fed royal jelly throughout her life. Uh, keeps her yeah. Sweet. yeah,. yeah, I have I love using a propolis throat spray when I'm sick or have a sore throat. It really feels powerful and very helpful. And I, I, yeah, I would love to use it more for wound care because we use, you know, tree resins for wound care a lot in my family. Mm-hmm. Pine sap. And honey together are profoundly supportive for wound yes. care. Actually honey is our other main wound care thing. It's used in hospitals still to that, to
0: this day, honey is used. And it was used in world war two
1: when they ran out of supplies. Yes. Yeah. My oldest had impetigo when she was eight or something. And it like immediately got rid of it on her skin. Hmm. We've just used it for so many things. We infused yarrow and in honey years ago and then strained it out. And we still, of course, it's still shelf stable. It's still great. Yeah. And we use it just for every sort of yeah. skin issue.
0: You know, you were the person who introduced me to infusing honey with herbs and spices. Mm way way back before i was even a beekeeper so Mm -hmm. it's it's a wonderful practice i mean the first meads honey wines they were ceremonial they were medicinal they weren't just to get drunk they were medicinal ways of working with the honey
1: and the plants they go hand in hand You have a beautiful quote on honey that, again, I got this from your course. Honey is the fluidity of the earth stored and preserved for nourishment and memory. Each honey in the hive is different and carries the signature of that flower and that season. It helps to preserve the hive memory of that land across generations, as well as acting as circulation, nourishment, and insulation for the hive. I'm really, really interested in my just my curiosity has been so piqued by this idea. So you say each honey in the hive. And what you mean by that, which I just learned is that when bees go out foraging, they will only forage at one type of plant a day for the most part. And then when, so when they bring that back to the comb and deposit it in a little cell, each little cell is only carrying one type of honey, lavender, honey, blackberry, honey, whatever it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the layer of pollens, you know, it looks like a little cake, <laughs> a layer cake, but they won't layer honey. So that's exactly it. And they're, they're considered very loyal foraging partners to the flowers. And as such, and we have to take into consideration as well, that, you know, flowers evolved with native pollinators, but the flowers in turn, they don't want to outcome, I, mean, I guess they do want to outcompete each other, but they've found a, a way where, for instance, Poppies might have their peak nectar. So what do I mean by peak nectar? Nectar is part of you know the photosynthesis process. So they're receiving you know that that wonderful solar juice up that energy from the sun and they're transforming it into nectar and that nectar is kind of, it's the inducement. It's the the thing that's calling the pollinator to them so that they roll around and move that pollen to the next, to the next, and the flowers can reproduce. So they, they have a erotic sexual relationship with the bees in a way that's, that's very beneficial for both interspecies. I, I just love this beautiful love of that. Uh, I am, let me find a better way to say this. Well, yeah, I love the love affair between Mm -hmm. bees and flowers. So the flowers don't have a constant drip of nectar. They have to produce it. And so they will produce it and it will come to a point of peak flow where the nectar is really up and flowing through the plant. And the bees learn this and memorize it. And so the poppies might have peak flow from, say, Eleven to two, and the bees are loyally with the poppies at that time. But then maybe the poppies need to slow down; they need to focus on gathering up that nectar again. And oh, look, the rosemary is going off now. I don't know which flower is which. I know poppies, for an as an example, have a peak flow in the morning like that. I can't remember other ones, but there are certain flowers like lavender, kind of an all day long. But certain flowers will have certain times of day that are peak flow. So you'll be walking by a tree and you would be like, oh my God, it's four o'clock and this tree is absolutely humming and with bees. And then you'll walk by it at 11 the next day expecting the hum and it's not there. That's because the bees are focused. They've already memorized a timetable. They're somewhere else for that part of the day. And they'll come back to that tree again, probably by that afternoon.
1: I also love how Jacqueline Freeman in the book Song of Increase talks about this relationship between bees and and plants and, and therefore land and soil and minerals. And that the bees, by, by traveling between, let's say, a bunch of different lavender plants in one day, gathering pollen from different lavender plants, landing on another one, they are facilitating communication between two different lavender plants, say, you know, that are however many feet or how they can go up to eight miles. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So they're, they are really like facilitating this communication between plants of the same species. And I'm sure interspecies as well as they go out on, on their foraging forays.
0: Yeah. And they're,
1: they're responsible for
0: in part for the mineral migration that then happens in the soil I think there's a quote I might have included in that class from her book about how monoculture is an, an anathema. Or maybe she says it's an anathema, meaning like an intergenerational curse on the soil. It's it because that, that the necessity for mineral migration through the diversity of plants is so essential to our soils.
1: Yeah. I just read that part last night <laughs> and I just I've talked about elemental interbeing so much on this podcast and just putting that together elemental interbeing how much yeah. these are facilitating the, the movement of minerals through soils over long periods of time like you know it's these are these are slow processes I am very intrigued as someone who Loved choosing classes in college, like the day that the class schedule came out and getting to read the class title and description. Like, one of my favorite things about the internet is all these beautiful online courses, and then seeing how people like name and structure their courses. And so, you have this beautiful apprenticeship coming up called Tending the Sacred Hive Women's Beekeeping Apprenticeship. And I just have to compliment you on the modules and the way you laid this out. So it's January through October, 10 months long. And okay. So the January module, January dreaming into being the norns and breath theme weaving February stories in the land, Bridget and beeswax theme reawakening. So with each month you are pairing a goddess or a mythic being with an aspect of of bees pollen propolis beeswax the hum and then they're tied together through this theme and I'm just I would love to hear about how you developed this framework because it's something we haven't really talked about and the reason you and I connected as friends here in Nevada City where I still live and your mother still lives here
0: I believe Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, 13, 14 years ago was because of this love of the mythic and understanding like ancient ways of being and ancestral life ways. And so I would just really love to hear how, how you are tying all this together in this course.
0: Hmm. You know, I think this course in a way is just like a full on personal indulgence. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the like, what a way to sell the course
0: to people. Come to the course. It's my own personal indulgence. Yeah, so, but I'm
1: sure so many people like myself are like, oh yes, I will dive into those waters with you.
0: Right. I've spent a lot of time, you know, I, I was a a Budding folklorist in my early teens, and got into herbalism in relationship to folklore at fifteen. I went on to study cultural anthropology, spent some time in Ireland studying archaeology and anthropology, and the uh, in the history of the conversion of, you know, what was the fifth to ninth century, and the conver- conversion of pagan to Christian that conversion i don't know how to say that correctly right now (laughs) and so i've always been interested in how things survived and what we can learn from relating back to the stories and the folklore that perhaps was a, a little bit more relational with land i'm very interested what drives me is this kinship, this kindred spirit connection between ourself and the living earth? Animism drives me, so I'm devoted to helping everyone find their own way in to the love affair. And by the love affair, I mean the love affair with the earth. And I think the bees and myth are two really good ways in. Myth transcends time. And can transcend place, and so when we work with these mythic images and these mythic archetypes of the feminine principle, of the sacred feminine, however you want to call it, these different goddesses, we start to be able to. Kind of, it's, it's like we can we can place ourselves not just in the distant past, but in the here and now. I'm really interested in doing that and helping people do that. So, as an example. You know, let's see, May, love language. So we talk about Venus and Aphrodite, but we talk about where, who they were before, or perhaps what we might glean about who they were before the patriarchal lens and what these energies might have represented and then we look at our relationship to the flower and the relationship of the bee to the flower and the metaphor of flowering and being one who flowers and the theme of being a lover, like the, the, the eco-erotic relationship to the earth. And that becomes one of the energy signatures of the hive. So that month we're talking about pollination and we're talking about how bees pollinate. We're talking about our own connection to maybe meditations with the flower, for instance, in, let me find another good one. I want
1: January since we're closest to it at this time of speaking. Perfect. Uh, Yeah.
0: So January is great. I, it comes with a favorite, favorite book. I always recommend during the January module about weaving, but January's theme is dreaming into being. And that's because if you're starting out, or even if the bees are in their winter, kind of their long winter sleep, we're in the dream. We're in this potential place, this place of dreaming a possibility into being. These empty hives waiting for new bees, or the bees waiting to expand into the spring, birth themselves anew. And I would say the dreaming terrain marries quite well with the, the norns or the fates or these primordial beings, these three sisters, these spinners and weavers. You know, they're always shown again and again, these primordial beings that create the threads of life, that weave us into, into being. They're often connected to the art of weaving. To women's craft in that way. Not that only women weave, obviously, but if we're looking at some of the European lore, a lot of the weavers were women to the point that even that became a place to imbue the cloth with protection, with sacred chants, which is where we get the word encantrix, which became enchantress. So there's this connection to weaving of life. And that's where we start to learn about the life of the honeybee and weaving that dream of a different reality into being where we're in more of a congruent relationship with the natural world uh yeah that's part of what january is about and we do actual dream work in january right
1: we also teach dream work yes yeah yeah Yeah. why don't you tell us you know more about um what what you offer because it is a lot of really good shit that my listeners are gonna love
0: Mm, yeah sure so right now, a lot of my focus is on this particular apprenticeship coming up in January, because we we start right before bee season to prepare for bee season. And then bee season is considered the spring when the bees start to naturally emerge and do something called swarming, which is how they birth themselves And it. Lots of information behind that. I mean, we'll the swarming
1: <laughs> part of uh, your intro to natural beekeeping was so fascinating.
0: Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Yeah. So I I teach some natural beekeeping courses. Of course, I've got the on-demand course there. I have another on-demand course. that's about reading comb, understanding what you're seeing with the comb. But then I also do a lot of dream work. I started teaching before beekeeping classes. I started teaching a course called Dreaming with Bees, which I still teach once or twice a year. It's only 12 students and we work with the bees as dream allies or as guides because of the amount of folklore out there around bees being messengers of the gods or those who can go between the realms and even just their nature their sort of porous nature of being able to go between gives gives us a sense of that fluidity and we can connect with that in dreams so i teach some dream classes around bees and then some dream classes that are not about bees. like the class I just finished called Entwine, which is all about connecting with the spirit of the beloved. I'm working on some new things. So I've got an actual retreat coming up called Episophia Ecstasis. I've only ever taught it in France and it's coming to California in February. And it's a women's, basically a women's oracular retreat. Where we use some of these bee motifs and modalities to connect with intuition and with the inherent flow of Eros or life force through our bodies. I'm doing that with a dear friend. And I'm working on some new stuff. I've got a class I'm about to put out. I'm still working on it, so I won't talk too much about it, but working with dreams as a healing vessel. So, working through dreams to receive healing in dreams. And that's something that also harkens back to some of the dream incubation practices of ancient Greece. I love to study ancient. Old European cultures, and I'm trying to to study, you know, where in my dysphora and lineage and ancestry, Celtic Celtic studies, I'm not Greek, but Greek studies, you know, some of the Balkan lands, that sort of thing, Lithuania, trying to understand where folk practices and old ways of being can be, you know, we can tease the threads out and try to remember some old ways. So, dream incubation is one of them, intending to dream with or for something. That's part
1: of what's coming up. Yeah. And then you also have um, these lectures that we're going to make available for free for patrons of this podcast. Um, tell me about the lectures.
0: The Kindred Bees Lecture Series. I started that in 2000. 22. So I've had two years of them. There's seven lectures each, and they cover different topics around our relationship to bees. Everything from a lecture just on the Oracle of Delphi, who is known as the Delphic Bee, and who she is, what that was about, to lectures about how to communicate with bees when you're at the hive, how to actually be around them and listen to them, and how they're communicating, how to relate to that. To communicating with bees when you're away from the hive, such as dreamworks and meditation. So a lot of different topics. I think one of my favorites from this year was body sovereignty. I'm talking about the sovereignty of bees and the body and the sovereignty of women and our bodies, or basically any body that isn't fitting into the heteronormative patriarchal model of dominance. So it's a really, um, a, just a diverse number of topics that with the bees threaded through it
1: yeah wonderful thank you so much Ari and I'm wondering now if you have any extra time to talk a little bit more maybe like 15 minutes um, for for patreon oh sure yeah okay I've never sprung that on someone before but there's just more I want to get into that I don't that's fine necessarily tack on to the end of this episode so Okay, we'll say goodbye for now. Yeah, thank you so much, Ari, for joining me. I've wanted to ask you to come back, pretty much just as long as since you've first been on. I also continue to, you know, get people saying thank you so much for bringing Ariella into my life, and um, it's just lovely to connect with you again. You too. It's really wonderful to watch our. Our children
0: grow, and our work change, and our work evolve, and get to witness that. Known you for so long now, so thank you.
1: Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about Ari's lecture series that is available for free to patrons at the five dollar level. I just didn't want to fill up the intro with this, but I wanted to give you an idea of what's available here because these are gorgeous, amazing. Lectures. I don't know if lecture is the best word because they're slideshow-based classes, talks. I mean, they're just to me they're so much richer than a lecture. Although I guess it is similar to what you would get if you were sitting in university, learning from a masterful teacher. So there are two series. There's the 2023 series and 2022 series. They both have seven lectures. Uh, You can get them. Both for free, all fourteen for free. I'm just gonna read some of the names of these classes: Messengers of Love, the love affair between the flower and the bee. Really expanding on what we spoke about in this interview, animism in beekeeping, and how an animistic worldview can support our relationship to bees. Trees, skeps, gourds, and clay, pre-industrial slash alternative beekeeping in various regions and ages. I love this. You know, we think about these box hives in modern beekeeping, but this is an um, anomaly in the history of bee kind. How do they live in the wild and how are people sort of rewilding beekeeping? I just love this pre-industrial beekeeping return that's happening the delphic bee prophecy and pilgrimage at the oracle of delphi and how bees heal us an overview of apitherapy and the healing benefits of the hive so just going deeper and expanding much farther on what Ari and i touched on here uh, Veil winged biology and behavior of the honeybee. I mean, to me, just it all comes back to the biology and behavior. It is the most fascinating, amazing, beautiful thing. Like we said, there doesn't need to be any sort of mysticism like superimposed onto bees. They are, through their biology and behavior, already as magical and beautiful as it gets communing with bees at the hive and then another lecture called communing with bees away from the hive I love that I'm gonna get into that I'm recording this a couple days away from the winter solstice but I've been kind of I don't know I'm I'm curious I need to watch that lecture but communing with my future bees that I hope to have on my land in the spring just I'm just like feeling into them like Hey, you're out there i'm I'm out here too, and <laughs> in a few months we're gonna be together and I'm gonna do my best to take care of you. Melissa, the bee women nymphs and priestesses of ancient Greece. so that's just just a few. I'm just like giving you an idea of how Ari packages and presents information which I just like fully resonate with. I love the way she shares. Okay, I did want to touch on this thing with Simon Buxton a little bit more. What we haven't said yet in this episode is that Ari has written a blog post. It's called The Death of the Myth of Lineage, I believe. And I will post link to it in uh, the Patreon resources. So she just goes a little more into what's been happening. To me, I'm really interested in this because when I read his book, The Shamanic Way of the Bee, as I mentioned in the interview, this was years ago. I loved it. So fascinating, this like amazing tale of him running into this ancient bee master who initiates him into this lineage that goes back in time. And at some point though, I realized... I'm reading a work of fiction. This this isn't real. It can't be real. It's too good to be true. I wish it was true, but it's not. And around that time I read a review of the book on Goodreads. I went to Goodreads and Amazon reviews to see if anyone else was like, you know, feeling the same way I was. And that's when I read about the plagiarization of P.L. Travers. And it's really interesting to hear now that he actually plagiarized from many, 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 many sources. And I thought about this book this summer when I was listening to an episode of my favorite podcast called The Emerald that you will all absolutely love, where he said that everyone wants to be secretly initiated into an ancient mystery cult. Something like that. As soon as I heard those words, I thought about the shamanic way of the bee. That's why this book is beloved. The vast majority of reviews on Amazon, I just read them again, are like amazing, life changing, incredible, so profound, so deep, beautiful. And it is. It just isn't true. The name of that podcast episode, by the way, is So You Want to Be a Sorcerer in the Age of Mythic Powers. And it's about AI, and it's really, fucking good. You should check it out. So I also found though, recently, um, when I heard from Ari that this was all kind of imploding, I found a a post on the website newagefraud.org from 2005 about how the book is fraudulent. And it Also mentions a 10 page article, it says, in the magazine Shaman's Drum, which I remember that we sold it when I worked at the health food store about the same thing. So in 2005, both like the printed publication, this magazine, and this newagefraud.org website knew that this was false. (laughs) And I don't know, it's just crazy to me that here we are 18 years later and it's just now he's just now facing the consequences, right, of presenting fiction and plagiarization as a real story that he experienced in reality. I don't, it's always like, how much energy do you want to put into other people's drama, you know, that really has nothing to do with you? But I am interested in this one. I do feel invested because of how, How far into the book I read, I don't remember how far I got over halfway though. And I'm always interested in these sort of spiritual longings of modern humans and how we are not initiated. We do not have our grandmothers and grandfathers handing down wisdom and wise life ways to us and we can be very vulnerable to falling for falsities. <laughs> this is something I'm I am always hooked into. My attention will be easily hooked by these kinds of stories and I'm glad it's coming out and people are knowing what's real, knowing what's real and not. And as we talked about, there's just it's completely unnecessary to attach a false story of ongoing shamanic lineage to anything having to do with honeybees. They are completely, completely magical and even mystical, a word I never (laughs) use just on their own. So if you would like to read that blog post from Ari's, it's going to be in the Bee Tender Resource Guide at Patreon as well as the coupon code to get all of these 14 gorgeous lectures for free, as well as the extra conversation between Ari and I, where she tells some really deeply personal stories around her father's passing and her daughter's entrance into the earth and motherhood, how she's doing, single motherhood, running a business alone with her almost three-year-old So that's there, patreon.com slash medicine stories. Thank you so much for listening. I love you.